Hey guys, it's Anand Shippy from Anantech.com. We're back for episode 22 of the Anantech podcast. Uh, joining us for the first time is uh, Dustin Sklavos. He's our, you know, everything from notebooks to desktops to cases and cooling reviewer. Dustin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so the reason I wanted to have you on, one, we haven't had you on ever, and uh, I, I think you you touch a lot of the very interesting stuff that, that's been going on in, in kind of the gamut from component side all the way over to full systems. But you and I have very differing viewpoints on Haswell. And while I'm not a big fan of the whole, uh, hey, let's get two guys who disagree to like talk about stuff, because um, I, I think that's usually motivated from the wrong point, I, I, I feel like there's a lot that needs to be said about Haswell, about Haswell on the desktop. And, and as I mentioned to you on Twitter, I, I think you and I probably agree on a lot of things. Um, so yeah, th this whole thing started because I, I think there's a good portion of the enthusiast population that is disappointed in Haswell on the desktop. Um, is that does that adequately characterize how you feel about it? Um, yeah, I think so. So what what are you disappointed in? So my basic issue with Haswell, and um, I've discussed this at length with uh, the good Dr. Ian Cutress, who's our uh, actually our resident competitive overclocker. Um, and he's a little bit less negative about it, but my fundamental issue with Haswell is the fact that essentially for, this is going to be the, I guess the third generation where overclocking performance has remained effectively almost the same. Um, if you look at, like, a, I remember a lot of people were disappointed with uh, with Ivy Bridge's performance because they were expecting that the die shrink would uh, give them a little bit more leeway, either in terms of thermals or in terms of clock speed, but that turned out not to be the case. And it wasn't actually an architectural issue, but it was the fact that Intel switched uh, from using solder under the, uh, under the heat spreader to just using a cheap thermal paste. Um, what's going on with Haswell? Well, hang oh, on, was it, was it that or more than that, though, right? Like, I, I think that was a um, contributing factor to uh, kind of thermals being what they were. Um, and I think, you know, some of our, the folks on our forums actually even went off and proved that. Yeah. But uh, was that actually a fundamental gate to, to overclockability there? Um, so what was going on with Ivy Bridge, uh, as far as I uh, as far as I know, is uh, it was a combination of the um, the switch from solder to thermal paste and uh, substantially greater heat density because Ivy Bridges die because it's basically... Like, uh, I think uh, Intel called it, uh, what, like a talk plus? Yes. Or, yeah. Um, but it was largely a die shrink of Sandy, and so the die was incredibly small, which means the heat was incredibly dense. So that was a contributing factor, but the fact that they were using thermal paste instead of solder under the heat spreader meant that um, the limiting factor of overclocking Ivy became almost entirely heat. Um, voltages that you could hit with uh, with Sandy Bridge would generate obscenely high uh, thermals with Ivy that were, I mean, effectively unusable. But I guess my question is, did anyone ever, um, I, I know I didn't personally, but but did you ever see any data of people uh, comparing overclockability um, on a delitted processor, you know, where they've replaced the, 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 you know, the, the thermal interface material with something else? Um, it's my understanding that a lot of people delitted the the processor. Um, the problem with the delitting was that it ran a pretty decently high risk of just of uh, <laughs> damaging the 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 die. Yeah. Um, but usually that seemed to have been good for at least another um, another couple hundred megahertz. 
So in, in your eyes, would, would that have fixed the issue? Like, is that, is that, is that all you were missing, that extra couple hundred megahertz with Ivy Bridge? Um, I think so, because the thing is, so, like, people were regularly hitting between 4.6 and 5 on Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivy dropped that down to between 4.4 and 4.6. Um, and I'm fortunate that I have a, uh, like, I, the Ivy in my desktop is an engineering sample that hits 4.6. Um, but I'm also using a SwiftTech H220 to keep it cool, and I'm still getting core temperatures in the low 80s uh, under load. Um, but I got a little bit off top. <laughs> I just completely lost my train of thought. No, that's fine. <laughs> so I guess what I'm getting at is, um, so there's the, ther- the thermal interface material, right? That's that's one issue. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, like I said, we've we've seen some of our own form readers have, have published data on that. Yeah. Um, Historically, you go to a smaller manufacturing process, and if you don't do much architecturally, um, which is the kind of recommended course of action to, to kind of ship something on time, uh, each subsequent process node, we, we ended up getting um, faster switching speeds out of the transistors, we got lower thermals, um, and, and you know that translated into uh, higher overclocking headroom. And with Ivy, you know, granted, we didn't see that. Now, why we didn't see that, I, I've heard a bunch of different things. And, and, you know, one of the things I even heard from Intel was, hey, look, this is our first 22 nanometer. Um, we also have to all keep in mind that each jump becomes more difficult than the last. Um, you know, as we kind of march towards physical limits of, of what you can do. Um, so, so some of it was just that. Uh, and then I've also heard things like the thermal density argument, um, and you know, so so I'm sure there's there's some combination of all of these things which is accurate. So so that takes us to Ivy Bridge, um, and then in Haswell, you you didn't see an improvement again, and and that that's your fundamental issue here. Yeah. So um, so yeah, uh, just going back very briefly to Ivy, it's my it's my understanding that thermals were actually very largely the um, the the limiting factor, um, and that kind of jibes with my experience um, with Haswell. You're dealing with um, again. I think it's a uh, it's partially thermal, but the architecture in general just doesn't seem to be clocking as high, and that jibes with what uh, with what Intel's saying about the you know about the die shrink, or um, excuse me, about the the, the die process. Um, I've again I've gone over this a lot with um, with Ian, uh, but because Haswell is relatively new, we haven't completely felt out overclocking. My primary issue is that, so we've lost, effectively, uh, going from Sandy to Ivy, we lost, we lost a couple hundred megahertz. Going from Ivy to Haswell, we've lost another couple hundred. Um, and so what that's resulting in is, while the IPC is higher, uh, that gets almost entirely neutralized by the lack of uh, overclocking headroom. Uh, and when I tested uh, a 4.4 gigahertz Haswell uh, from a digital storm unit I have in for review against uh, my own 4.6 gigahertz Ivy, I found that the performance difference slightly favored Haswell, but it was a pretty negligible advantage. Um, so I want to get to that in a second. Do you okay. have any other complaints about Haswell on the desktop? Um. None in so much as, I mean, they, they did the same thermal paste instead of solder, although I've heard that uh, Ivy Bridge E will actually use solder, so that may be the next great white hope for overclockers. Um, but I've heard, uh, 
And it's just, the problem is, it's a lot of it's hearsay because Haswell is so new that we don't quite have the data yet. Um, I know Ian is going to be investigating uh, one of the things that's been circulating, which is that the the retail chips have uh, even less overclocking headroom than the engineering samples that were seeded to reviewers. Um, and so he, so I have um, a second. Uh, review unit that has a Haswell chip in it, and this one has a retail chip, and that one's only overclocked to 4.2. Uh, and we've also heard that uh, boutiques are having a harder time hitting high clocks with Haswell, so if that's be- if that's a universal thing in the industry, then that points to Haswell being just generally a really comparatively poor overclocker. So, when I first, uh, when I first learned about Adam back in 2008, um, I remember speaking to one of the lead architects on the project, uh, this guy named Belly. He's, he's a real smart guy. And, and one of the things he taught me at the time was uh, when, when they designed Atom, they designed it for a very specific clock target. And this was unusual back in 2008. You know, we had overclocking was a very, very big deal. You got all of this free headroom on all these processors. Yeah. But his point was any path that can run faster than you actually need it to run ends up being a waste of power. Right, so they made sure that everything was specifically targeted to a, a very, you know, uh, narrow frequency band. And and if you look at the atom parts that launched, they all launched within a very narrow frequency band. Uh, and their whole strategy was, look, we will just scale frequency as needed um, over the life of this architecture using process, and and we won't actually allow it to to scale all that much uh, on a given design. And that's what we've kind of seen there. And, and the argument that I made in, in the Haswell review when, uh, because I too, you know, leading up to the review, I'd heard the same exact thing, even with the engineering samples, that we were going to see wide swings in just how overclockable these parts were. Uh, the hypothesis I put out there was, hey, maybe it's over. Like, Haswell is clearly designed, you know, desktop was a, 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 not a top priority here. Right? Yeah. So the microarchitecture was designed for mobile, it was designed, uh, I mean, for mobile and for servers, but it was designed for low power. And I feel like we might be giving up that, uh, that overclocking headroom that we've enjoyed for so long in pursuit of, of that. So my question to you is, if it's over, like if, if, it, it, if uh, Broadwell doesn't get appreciably better and let's say overclocking is kind of dead by the time we get to Skylake, would that change your views on Haswell? Um, honestly, I, I'm not sure I could say either way. Um, it is obvious that Haswell is designed for mobile first and desktop at this and second, and enthusiasts are kind of, we're not shafted, but we're basically kind of, we're a pretty low priority. And Haswell on the mobile side is very impressive. It's just on the desktop, it's almost, it's not a non-starter, but it's not, uh, spectacular. As far so as I don't, I don't yeah. necessarily agree with what I'm about to say, but I, I just want to put it out there and, okay. and get your response to it. Um, do you still believe that enthusiasts are shafted, even though, even in its stock configuration, right? Because of Turbo, yeah. because of the really, really high IPC, that Intel still offers uh, kind of better single-threaded performance than you can get from anyone else, even if you take overclocking into account. Um, do you still feel that the enthusiast gets the kind of short end of the stick? Again, not saying I agree with this, yeah. but I'm, I'm just curious. Um, yes, and part of the problem is that AMD hasn't been competitive, and without AMD to, to drive Intel and to at least try and steal some of those enthusiast dollars, 
uh, there's no impetus on Intel to really do anything from the overclocker apart from lift service. Um, so with the enthusiasts, if... How can I put it? If Intel was trying to court them in the slightest, if there was even... Uh, if there was even an ounce of competition from AMD, it would be all the difference between having thermal paste under the under the lid and having uh, solder. Yeah, that's true. I, I'd give you that. Um, now, you know, we've we've always said that. Look, or not always, but at least for the past few generations here, we, we've said that AMD. You know, they haven't been competitive, but they've been trying. Right? They've been doing a new architecture kind of as they as they plan and as they laid out in their roadmap, their architects have shown up and they, they haven't been competitive on single thread performance. But I mean they're they're showing up. They're just they're just not winning. Yeah. So there there is that pressure. Um I feel like so I've made this exact argument to Intel, right? Um but but it was in kind of a different sense, right? I've kind mm-hmm. of accepted uh I've kind of accepted that overclocking is going to go away at some point. Um, and, and it doesn't matter if you ask AMD or ARM or Intel, at some point, I think the world cares about power. And, and if it's indeed true that there's this like active trade-off between frequency headroom, uh, kind of unused frequency headroom and um, uh, wasted power, then uh, I think at some point it has to die. So I've kind of accepted that. Um, but my complaint to Intel was, hey, look, if AMD were competitive in the space, we would have things like TSX would be enabled on all parts. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, we would have a crystal well-enabled desktop SKU and, you know, one that was a K-series SKU. And we would have, uh, like, B-clock overclocking on all parts, not just K-series parts. So those are the things that I feel like Intel has kind of uh, taken from us or not given to us because we don't have a real competitive alternative in the desktop space. Um, But the overclocking side, I I, I don't know. The verdict's not out on that yet for me. I, I feel like... I feel like that ride might be over. Um, and I'm actually kind of surprised it's even gone on for this long. Um, and I'm also kind of okay with it because how good Turbo is, right? Like, I, I, I yeah. don't know. Do you, do you feel like uh, Turbo isn't enough? Like, how much more headroom do you wish you had in these parts? Well, so part of it is um, Turbo is nice, but you'll notice Intel has held uh, clocks pretty steady on their, uh, you know, on their top end uh, mainstream chips, um, and they have more headroom than that, and that's been proven. That was proven with Sandy. That was proven with Ivy, uh, and even Haswell has a little bit of juice left in the tank. So, but they don't. But Intel doesn't have to. There's no pressure on Intel to even hit those clocks. They can keep it stable. You'll notice Intel hasn't really touched 4 gigahertz apart from, um, I think, Sandy Bridge E. Uh, and Ivy Bridge E, actually, uh, again, given that it has uh, solder under, under the lid instead of, um, instead of thermal paste, at least with the early engineering sample that got delitted and promptly destroyed, uh, I don't think overclocking is effectively dead, and I do think that there's still... Um, there's still an audience for it, especially actually now that you're seeing uh, more of a PC gaming renaissance, where uh, a lot of the uh, current generation of PC games hit the CPU pretty hard. So if you're talking about even a game like um, like StarCraft II, which is horribly, horribly optimized, it's still basically single-threaded. So any ounce of performance you could get for that game helps. Uh, if you look at games like um, 
like Far Cry 3, Crisis 3, uh, Tomb Raider, these are all essentially next-generation games, and they do hammer the CPU pretty hard. Uh, and in fact, even um, I was playing uh, MechWarrior Online uh, at a friend's house yesterday on a uh, on the last generation of Alienware M11X, and found that it didn't really matter what I set the uh, what I set the, the the game settings to. It just didn't have enough CPU horsepower for it, and that's uh, that may be an, uh, a low voltage uh, Sandy in there, but that's still a low voltage uh, dual core Sandy. It's not like it's a, a slow part, and so for something like that to be capping uh, CPU performance, uh, I think it's premature to say that uh, that overclocking, like overclocking as it stands, may very well be dead. Uh, but the tech industry oftentimes will kill something before it needs to die, before it's ready to die. And on the consumer side, as long as there's video editing and as long as there's gaming, uh, and undoubtedly there will be uh, other tasks, uh, there's always going to well, be that need for more CPU power, which means there's going to no, be need so for overclocking. I wouldn't. I don't confuse my point with saying that CPU performance doesn't matter. I, so I, I mean, obviously, I, I believe very, very much in, in CPU performance mattering, um, and I don't think we've seen the end of scaling there. I think one of the reasons that you haven't seen aggressive pursuit of frequency is because that's a, a very inefficient way of scaling performance, right? I think the difference here is that uh, the expectations for the entire market. And I would even argue that a lot of the people building PCs, you know, especially if we see the shift towards mini ITX, I don't think you want to see people pushing TDPs much higher, right? And I think they're, they kind of also want to see TDPs come down. Now, the problem with that is to push those higher frequencies, um, you need more voltage and you get this kind of quadratic scaling effect with power consumption and, and thus thermal dissipation yeah. once you start scaling with voltage. Um, so I don't necessarily know. I think if... If AMD were competitive and they were also putting out 130, 140, 150 beyond watt TDP parts, I think Intel would, you know, kind of be forced into responding. But I don't necessarily know that that's what we want. Like, I, I don't want a, uh, I don't want another voltage and frequency race, right? Like we we had yeah. that before and it it ended really badly. Oh, I absolutely uh, agree. I absolutely agree. But so that that kind of. Uh, and even from an overclocking standpoint, like a, a few years ago, I, I think around the Nehalem time point, for me, I stopped caring about peak frequency, but I was more interested in peak frequency without increasing voltage, right? Because yeah. I, I wanted power efficient overclocking. We no longer have that, right? You can't you can't do stock voltage overclocking anymore. That there's that frequency is done, right? Like that that aspect of overclocking is you know it, it came and it, it went. I would actually disagree with you on that. Really? You think yes. you can push uh, substantially higher frequencies at stock voltage? I think there's uh, there's headroom for uh, typically, uh, at least on Sandy, uh, and to an extent on Ivy, there was still headroom left at the stock voltage. Uh, these uh, The architectures that Intel's been providing us have actually been extremely efficient to the point where, like, even if you do pump some extra voltage into it... Uh, load power consumption is still very low. And Sandy and Ivy, as far as I could tell, still both had, like, a good couple hundred megahertz left in them uh, at the uh, at the stock voltage, at least. Yeah, so a couple hundred I'm not as concerned about, right? Like, in the Nehalem days, you could do quite a bit. That's For me, true. when I saw it end was kind of with Linfield, right? Linfield arrived, 
stock frequency or stock voltage frequency scaling was kind of gone yeah. um, appreciably. Like I'm, I'm talking, you know, 100, 200 megahertz when you're talking about three to four gigahertz parts here. Yeah. That's percentage wise, that's an uninteresting scaling amount, right? Yeah, I can see that. Uh, now, if we're talking, you know, you can get five, 600 megahertz at stock voltage. I, I don't think that's possible anymore. And if you look at the voltages that people are talking about for Haswell overclocks, um, or even IV overclocks, you're, you're in this like plus 20 to 30% range, which makes me uncomfortable from a power consumption standpoint. Um, and it's not so much that, uh, well, for me, it's, it's, it's really more about like, I don't want the added heat coming out of that box. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I dusted off the PS3 recently and I've been playing, you know, The Last of Us and my PS3 is a launch PS3. Like it still has PS2 backwards compatibility. Oh, good Lord. And it's hot, like it just gets warm, and I don't want that. And and that's the kind of reason I shy away from, uh, like it pumps that heat into the room, and yeah. it's, you know, July here in North Carolina, and it's really hot. I don't I don't want additional heat. So that's kind of why I'm not interested in, uh, voltage driven, you know, overclocking headroom, especially at the degrees that we're talking about now. But you're saying you're okay with that, like you you just want. Uh, you know, give it another 30% voltage and give me more frequency. Okay, so I haven't really uh, spoken too much about, like, my personal uh, overclocking philosophy, because I've, you know, again, I've discussed it uh, at length with Ian, where, because Ian will push his hardware as hard as he can, yes. uh, and he doesn't care about, he's not concerned about, about noise levels or power consumption, he just wants it to go as fast as possible. I'm yes. looking for the sweet spot. I'm looking for that, because uh, typically with the chip, there's uh, there's this inflection point, where you can very slowly but steadily add voltage and get pretty good frequency gains, and then you hit that inflection point, and uh, all of a sudden it's requiring like a lot more voltage to even get like another hundred megahertz. And yes. so when I overclock, I'm looking for that uh, for that inflection point in that sweet spot where I don't have to appreciably, or actually even at all, really increase noise levels. Uh, or power consumption that much, but I still get like a healthy boost of performance. And I was able to do that with uh, with Ivy, and we were able to do that with Sandy. Uh, I haven't personally really kind of put the screws to Haswell just yet, but it's my understanding that that inflection point is much, much closer to uh, to the stock speed than it was in the last two generations. So... So the rule of thumb, at least from what I've seen here, is you know you can talk about 4.4 to 4.6 on like a, a 4770K, whereas with Ivy, you know that range might have shifted up by you know uh, let's say 100 to 200 megahertz at each end. It, do you feel like that's that's accurate with what you're hearing as well? Well, so okay, so Ivy uh, when Ivy came out, uh, Ian posted that basically 4.4 was what we were looking at as our inflection point. Um, and like I said, I have one at 4.6, but I have one that, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty cherry. Yeah. Uh, with Haswell, it looks like we're down to about 4.2. Uh, okay. Peak peak overclocking, where you're just like dumping as much voltage as you can into it to get the like the the highest clock speed. I'm not sure how much that's changed. I think that's almost, probably going to be almost entirely limited by heat. Uh, Ivy was uh, similarly limited by heat. Uh, but so you're. You're talking about roughly a 200 megahertz difference, right? So it works out to just under about 5%. Um, but isn't the trade-off, like, so the the test that I've seen thus far, and, and one thing that I think is a problem 
uh, there are two issues that face Haswell right now, right? Which is yep. uh, the biggest performance increases will be on things running AVX2 code. We don't have a lot of examples of that. I yep. need to go back and, and test the latest version of X264 with AVX2 support added in there. Um, so, so that's really not represented in any benchmarks today. And I also don't think that that's necessarily a good reason to buy Haswell because I, I don't like the argument that, hey, future applications will be better optimized for it. And so you should buy this versus something else. So I, I, I don't I don't buy into that. But that is one thing that, that kind of is, is a difficult um, thing to take into account with recommendations. The second yep. thing is, I don't necessarily know that the bulk of how a lot of not, not only just how others test, but even how we test uh, is really showing some of the, the inherent strengths of Haswell here. Um, you look at the compile benchmarks that we did under Visual Studio um, and on Xcode uh, under OS X. And there you see appreciable gains, right? So we saw roughly a 15% increase in IPC, yeah. uh, IV to Haswell on the Windows side and almost 20% um, on, the, uh, on the OS X side. So if you're talking about that kind of a situation, right? Let's say that's the best case scenario, a yeah. 15 to 20% gain in IPC. Yeah, if you don't have a, you know, let's say you take a five percent regression in in max frequency, you're still up ten to fifteen percent in terms of peak performance. Now that range, obviously, that's kind of the best case scenario until we yeah. get AVX two apps. Um, so maybe at the, you know, at the other end of the range where, where you don't have, you know, let let's say you only have like a five percent increase in performance, and you know you lose that five percent in frequency. Yeah, I give you that. That that makes a lot of sense. But does that uh, are you are you only looking at one end of the range, or do you feel like you're you're taking into account both ends? Well, because it's a all right. So if you're going to talk about it as a range, um, and you'll figure that kind of reminds me a little bit of um of pile driver, where uh, and specifically the uh, the Vichera, uh CPUs, where uh, under ideal circumstances, uh, an FX eighty three fifty can beat and i7-3770K in performance under the most ideal circumstances. But yeah. there's a range, and there's a range of circumstances. Now, it's not as wide for Haswell, but in my testing, I found uh, with the uh, you know with the, the gaming benchmarks, with the you know, RX-264 benchmark, and with Cinebench, that Haswell's gains in IPC overall uh, are, are about... You'd need between 200 and 300 megahertz on Ivy to kind of match it. So a Haswell... That varies depending on what clock, right? Because you have to talk yeah. in percentages. You can't yeah. talk in frequencies. Um... But when I like when I tested the, like the 4.4 Haswell against the 4.6 Ivy, the okay. Ivy would have needed to be at probably about 4.65, 4.7 to match it. Okay. So, and, and to get to those frequencies, obviously you have to run at even higher voltage, right? Which on, to... on Ivy you would, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the problem is, though, is that so you're looking at maybe when all is said and done, you're looking at maybe like a two to five percent uh, increase in uh, in performance, or actually a pretty negligible one going from from Ivy's conventional top end to Haswell's conventional top end. And so what you see essentially is a plateau of overclocking performance uh, stretched over generations, and when you get a new generation of chips, that's not really like so. At stock speeds, things things look a little bit sunnier. Yes. But peak perf has stayed effectively the same. 
It's been yeah. very minor. So the issue I have with the peak performance comparison, one, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and you're always like a really, really good consumer advocate, right? Because you, you end up testing like the implementation of these things in a boutique system, well, right? which mirrors but, yeah. implementation in like an overclocker system as well. So yeah. I, I think it's a very valid and interesting viewpoint. Um, my issue with that comparison is it ignores power, right? You're effectively yeah. saying that, hey, I have a higher voltage, higher frequency Iverage part which is, you know, let's say, and, and again, I feel like that's, that's too narrow of a set of benchmarks to look at. Well, so you right? want to, I think, let me, uh, let me go ahead and pull up actually, uh, let me pull up my power stats so that I can actually give you a better comparison. Um, but your power stats, I'm guessing, are across different systems, right? They are, but okay, so, uh, but we can, you know, we can do some quick and dirty uh, math because part of it too is uh, so you're talking about like you know like increasing power consumption if you overclock you know Sandy or Ivy or Haswell uh, but when you overclock those you you don't see this massive jump in power consumption the way you might with like with Sandy E uh, usually it's a trade off of about uh, in my experience it's probably in the neighborhood of about 30 watts um, now I'm looking at uh, I've got numbers here for an overclocked i seven thirty seven seventy k with a GTX 680 against an i7-4770K with a GTX 780. Uh, and the peak power consumption difference is the, uh, the 3770 uh, peaked at 313, 313 watts, and uh, the 4770 system with the 780 peaked at 359 watts. And if you take the, uh, the difference in uh, power consumption between the 680 and the, and the uh, 780 out of the equation, you're looking at about the same peak power consumption. But these are, again, different systems, different power supplies, different motherboards. Like, I, I don't like yeah. the idea of the comparison because I can't, like, it's, it's occluding what I'm caring about right now, right? Which is, yeah. all I want to know is, you have these two CPUs in a vacuum, how do they compare power-wise? Um, and I, I don't see them, like, if you're saying that I have to run at a higher voltage and higher frequency to get even a couple percent less performance on Ivy. I can't see that being equal power to lower frequency, lower voltage, better IPC on Haswell. Well, but so how much, all right, so how much, how much of a difference in power consumption are we looking at? Are we looking at, like, because on a desktop, the difference between, like, a, let's say hypothetically 10 or even 20 watts uh, isn't a major one. Uh, and and one of the things that actually, if I, if you'll forgive me in going on a tangent for a little bit, this is something I uh, mentioned to you on uh, Facebook, uh, I think a couple weeks ago. Uh, so Haswell has uh, between a five and fifteen percent uh, increase in IPC over uh, Ivy Bridge, uh, but it also has uh, about that much of an increase in TDP. So has or so Intel improved IPC like on the same process node, uh, which is impressive in and of itself. But there was a power cost. No, but the TDP now includes the fiber. It includes the voltage regulator. So you're you're comparing seventy-seven watt Ivy Bridge, excluding the onboard voltage regulator, to That's eighty-four fair. watts, which includes the voltage regulator. That's fair. Um, so I, I I don't know. Like I I get the. So I'll have to say this, um, what your issues are, are different than what I thought they would be. Um, and, and I don't know, to me, like it's, it's a, uh, 
if, if I'm understanding you correctly, you want a bit more frequency headroom. Like we're talking about like sub 5% here. Um, a bit more frequency headroom at the kind of the sweeter spot of the frequency voltage curve above stock, which I think is a reasonable request. Yeah. Um, and, and is that it? Like, is that the, the fundamental difference here? Or are you, so what I heard from a lot of users was, hey, Haswell's a talk. And, you know, what we want from a talk is 20% plus gains in, in IPC. Um, and I think, you know, you go back and you look at Conroe and you look at Sandy Bridge and that's what we got. Yeah. But you look at Nehalem and you look at Haswell and that's not what we get. Yeah. Um, Nehalem was like a zero to 40% depending on how threaded your task was. And Haswell is, you know, in this, uh, let's, you say five to 15%, let's just call it 10 yeah. uh, percent increase in IPC. So, so you don't get that, um, you know, you don't get that 20% plus. That's what I heard as a lot of people wanting. And my response to that really was that, um, well, let me stop. Is that, is that reflective of your opinion as well? Or is the main thing you're, you're lacking is that, that overclocking headroom? Um, I think my, uh, one of my main things is, uh, the overclocking headroom. The, uh, the IPC is, uh, definitely kind of underwhelming, but, uh, actually isn't really that surprising to me given the, you know, like Sandy Bridge was a monster when they transitioned over to that. I wasn't even expecting it to to be as big of a jump in uh, in IPC as it was. Uh, and Haswell was, you know, it was built up and it was hyped up, and then it shows up, and it's the you know the IPC improvement is there, but it's kind of minimal. And the uh, the overclocking performance is lower, um, and so like I'm kind of, it's just it's 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 kind you of wanted more. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of us wanted more. So my issue with the claim, the 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 desire for more, like the overclocking side, I've said my piece there. Like I, yeah. I think, I, I think it's um, one, at least where you're targeting, like you're you're targeting what I'm more interested in, in terms of overclocking. And yeah, there's like this whatever five percentish regression there. Um, but I like I said, I've already come to accept that that's not going to get any better. Um, I, I just I really don't think it's going to happen. Um, until someone can turn around and, and make a business case for why we want to push higher TDPs on the desktop, um, I, I don't think we're going to get that back. I think it's, you know, we might see like a, a bit of an improvement with Broadwell, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's just kind of a, a plateau or maybe even a slight downward trend from here on out, just from a, a you know, architecting for power efficiency standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, now, on the IPC being underwhelming aspect, uh, I can see it both ways, right? My yep. issue is we can't, as a community, out of one side of our face, say, hey, uh, you know, Intel has the absolute best uh, single-threaded performance in the industry among client, you know, folks shipping and client. Yep. Um, and AMD, why can't you be like, by, be like Intel? And then at the other time, uh, you know, at the same time, say, hey, Intel, um, we want more. Right, because like there is a you got to remember Pentium four days. Intel said that single thread performance scaling was like ending, right? Yeah, that that we weren't going to get that. And the fact that if you go back and compare, you know, where we were with Conroe to where we are with Haswell, that it looks like a dramatic increase in single thread performance. Um, that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. Like each of these gains yeah. isn't very easy to do, and it's not very easy to do without just throwing voltage and frequency at the problem. Um, and you look at AMD, right? Like this is a company that has even said, we're going to increase IPC 10 to 15% every year. And 
that's not even enough, right? So like yeah. if AMD can't pull out 40% plus per year or, or 20 to 40%, it's got to be, you know, more difficult for Intel to do the same given where they are in the, the IPC scaling curve, right? It's no yeah. longer a linear curve. Um, well, Intel winds up being essentially a victim of their own success. Yeah, and well, you also have to look at, you know, the reason we got such great scaling with Sandy Bridge, right? So Sandy Bridge was a complete replumbing of the out-of-order core. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there was a lot of work done under the hood there. Haswell builds upon that, right? You can't just yeah. go back and do that again. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like uh, when you integrate the memory controller, right? You get this, like, huge performance increase. Yeah. But you only get it once. And the next time, you got to do something else. But, you know, after a certain point, there's only so much you can do. Um and I thought, I don't know, I was pretty impressed that uh, they widened the execution engine with Haswell, right? Like, we've been yeah. on, what, the same six-port design since Conroe? Um, so I thought that was a really big deal. Uh, but, but to get that, I feel like it's, it is unrealistic to expect a 20% increase in IPC, um, regardless of what happens underneath the hood, right? Intel was very open about, hey, these are the changes that we made internally yeah um and yeah we doubled cache bandwidth and we you know doubled peak uh floating point throughput but that's that's avx2 stuff right i yep. think they were uh very upfront about that at idf so i i don't know that's my issue with the hey we want to see 20 plus percent ipc increase um because like the the work they did under the hood wouldn't support that yeah well okay so I guess what what my what my ultimate point is, and keep in mind, I'm not like I'm not completely down on Haswell, and I know I recognize what Haswell was designed for. Um, if you are not, if you don't possess as deep an understanding of CPU architecture, if you're just you know if you're an enthusiast that's just you know that's waiting for the next part, and you have like a, a pretty basic understanding, uh, what you're look what you see. Uh, and and completely acknowledging that this is a, a, a small part of the market, um, not like not super tiny, but really comparatively small. Would you agree? Um, yeah. So I, I also wouldn't diminish the value of that market, right? No, like no, whole, absolutely not. The whole philosophy on the the site is that um, yeah, but these are the influencers, right? These yeah. are the ones that tell everyone else what to do. Yeah. But so what they've seen, what the enthusiasts have seen, essentially is uh, they've seen that for the past uh, two years, uh, top-end overclocking, or even like mid-end overclocking performance hasn't changed. That's what, that's what the killer is. That's what the spoiler is. Now, at stock speeds, yeah, like Ivy... To me, I was impressed with Ivy um, because they took a 95-watt part, dropped it down to 77, and still managed to give us a little more, a little more performance. To me, that was impressive. Yes. Uh, and even for me with Ivy, like every single time single thread performance goes up and power doesn't go through the roof, I'm just happy. Like mm -hmm. I, because I still believe that single thread performance is responsible for quite a bit. It's responsible for improving system responsiveness. Yeah. Right. Like that kind of seat of the pants feel. That's all single single thread performance. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to see that we have scaling there. Right. Yeah. Versus tick or talk, I don't care. We as long as that number goes up, I'm always happy. So yeah. I was pleased with Ivy as well. Um. But yeah, the the fundamental the fundamental issue seems to be essentially that there's been a kind of a performance plateau, um, at even the top end with Haswell, whereas Haswell um, 
From an overclocking perspective. From an overclocking perspective, and a little bit less from just a garden variety desktop user perspective. Um, it doesn't... Haswell does not excite me as a desktop chip. It absolutely excites me as a mobile chip. Absolutely. Um, and the fact that it enables... Uh, enable systems like the Razer Blade 14 inch, I think is incredibly impressive. If you look at the uh, internal design of the the 14, I don't think that would have been possible without some serious compromises with uh, previous generation hardware. So Haswell's destiny doesn't really seem to be the desktop. And so it's easy to feel uh, left behind there. But does that, um, sorry, I, I guess the next question there is, what do you think happens to the desktop going forward? All right, because the if you Intel, I guess Intel PR publicly will will say that hey, the desktop is still very important to us. But I think if you ask anyone inside Intel, they'll tell you that yeah, I mean, desktop is not it's not important because it's yeah. it is a shrinking market, um, and and they've been mobile chips for them. And I'm not talking phones; I'm just talking you yeah. know things going into notebooks. Um, they've outshipped desktops since the mid 2000s for yeah. Intel. Um, so, so what do you think happens to the desktop market? Well, so like pretty much every year has been the the cry of uh, like desktops die. The desktop is dead, and it's. And I take that with about the same uh, same grain of salt as when I hear this is the year of Linux on the desktop. It's. <laughs> um, the desktop market will shrink, and it may very well, like, I mean, like, I would typically defer to you as far as prestidigitation and trying to figure and, you know, predicting what the, where the technology market's going to go. But um, the desktop, however it may shrink, is still going to have an advantage over, uh, over mobile form factors just by virtue of physics. Yes. Uh, so that that's actually, uh, that's been my position on it as well, right? That the... Um, you get into the situation where, yeah, mobile is really desirable, um, and ultra mobile is really, really desirable. Yeah. But the gap between ultra mobile and what is possible in mobile is about five years in terms of performance. And then you start looking at mobile versus desktop, and you're talking about another year or two there, right? Yeah. So if performance matters, TDP matters, and then the desktop matters. But so let me ask you this. What do you think of the new Mac Pro? What was announced? I, I know you're not a, a Mac user, but what, what do you think of the, um, like, their approach? Um, I gotta, I'll have to ask you to, uh, to be more specific regarding, um, regarding their approach. Because, I mean, I personally, uh, I think it's a really beautiful boondoggle that has absolutely no practical value in the real world. Interesting. Why do you say that? Um, so... Uh, as an enterprise machine, its only expandability is... Uh, well, I mean, Apple ha hasn't really been a particularly... If Correct me if I'm wrong, they haven't been a big presence in enterprise to begin with. Um, oh, no, so don't confuse. The, the role of the Mac Pro, yeah. um, it's been for, like, uh, creative professionals, right? Yeah. Someone who's working in video, someone who's working yeah. in... And, and you can relate to that. And, yes. and someone who's working in, like, audio or photo production, right? Yeah. So it's a workstation... Um, and and but yeah, continue. What's okay. what's your? So I think it's uh, I think it's extremely well engineered and completely useless. And the reason for that is because um, enterprise class uh, workstations, be they from um, from Dell, 
from HP, from Lenovo, or in this case from Apple, keeping in mind that there were a tremendous number of small independent uh, independent video production houses that uh, cropped up and kind of made their living off of uh, Final Cut Pro 7, which uh, Final Cut Pro X pretty much, I don't want to say it killed them, but it mortally wounded them. And they had to they had to essentially adapt and find something else. Um, and as an aside, uh, I uh, I watched uh, I watched a documentary on Netflix that's really interesting called um, Side by Side. It's narrated by Keanu Reeves, and it's got um, a bunch of different uh, professionals working in like in professional uh, motion picture production. And if you look at the hardware that they're all sitting next to. There isn't a whole lot of Apple there. In fact, there are, there are no Apple cinema displays. They're all using Dells. Um, the 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 Apple presence is very very light. And this and when I was going to school, this was a stronghold. Um, which just reminds me of how long it's been since I was in school. But <laughs> uh, but so what the what the essential issue is is so uh, the Mac Pro is not expandable. It's just not. They've got uh, proprietary. I mean, they've and you know, Apple's done proprietary standards for like for their internal hardware since the days of yore. Uh, and while the engineering and the thermal design of the Mac Pro is gorgeous, it's the fact that as far as workstation cards go, remembering that um, that Mac, since they made the x86 jump, can dual boot Windows. Well, but AMD's Fire Pro cards are not what you would find in a top-end or even mid-end enterprise workstation. So you've got two Fire Pros, and they're fantastic if you're using the applications they're optimized for, but they don't have kind of that... They don't have that the the broader um, compatibility and performance profile that a Quadro might. Um, They're... And on the... I, I'm I'm I, I'm, I'm not our graphics guy, and I, I haven't done a bunch in in I, I haven't like investigated workstation level graphics in quite a while. I mean, do you have something more specific about Fire Pro versus Quadro? Um, so what the essential issue is is what it's kind of been for AMD for a little while is drivers. Um, and so like the Fire Pros, for example, are really good for Maya. Yeah. Uh, so if you're uh, you know, if you're on the cheap, like a like my brother, for example, bought like a $400 Fire Pro, and under those circumstances, the Fire Pro is like 100% the best decision for him because Quadros are really expensive. Um, but like so, video editing in, for example, like a, and I, any video professional that's listening to me is going to shut off the podcast right now. But like Premiere Pro, for example, yeah. which I actually which I use because Adobe has been really aggressive with pursuing uh, new hardware as it becomes available. And Mercury Playback Engine in uh, Premiere CS5 was a major jump forward. And NVIDIA couldn't even characterize what exactly it did for the media, and I had to kind of experiment with it to realize just what the what Mercury Playback Engine's value was. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of acceleration uh, done through CUDA uh, in Premiere Pro, that helps with the real-time editing of uh, AVCHD clips um, with RED. So, but that's been so on. on uh, that's a that's a definite thing that uh, Nvidia's invested in. But the next yeah. version of Premiere Pro also brings OpenCL support, right? So that, that it that does. Fixes that. 
Um, and then, well, so it, kind of off topic, right? That okay. Apple kind of controls a little bit more of the application and driver stack there. Um, so there, the the CUDA versus OpenCL support thing, I think, is less of an issue. You know, and that'll OS be less 10. of an issue moving on. Yeah, but the so the reason I asked it, uh, I asked what you thought about the Mac Pro. Um, the expandable, the expandability thing is an interesting point um, because. So when I was a kid, I, we had this 386SX, mm -hmm. and the world moved to 486s, and you know that's all we had was this 386SX, and it was like really, really slow. And I remember wanting, like, wishing we had modular computers where I could just like pull out a box and then put in something else, and now all of a sudden, like, we have a cheaply upgraded 486. Um, and it's weird, but the Mac Pro is the kind of realization of that. Um, it, you still can't get that processor yeah. swap, right? But all of their expandability is driven by Thunderbolt 2. And Thunderbolt 2 is still not enough bandwidth, um, at least for what I want, which is why they put three Thunderbolt 2 controllers on there. Um, it's still not per channel. I still want more bandwidth. Um, I want the ability to put like really, really, you know, I want to be able to do uh, very high-end graphics over an external interface, right? Yeah. And you can't kind of do that here. No. Um, so I understand the expandability critics. Um, I feel like in the Mac ecosystem, a lot of folks are already used to not upgrading video cards. Because um, even if you look at the Mac Pro, yeah. every now and then you'll get like a, a third-party upgrade option, but good luck. Like for the most part, you don't. Um, so I feel like you have to split, split the expansion story into, hey, what are you okay with doing over external PCIe by four? Um, and you know, you having three effective links to that. Um, and, and if you can be serviced by that, then, hey, there's tons of expandability. And, and honestly, it's a very nice way of doing expansion. Um, internal upgradability, on the other hand, uh, yeah, you have a custom form factor GPU. That's, that's, uh, that is an issue. Um, yeah. How much of an issue? I don't know. I mean, I've already, like, I moved to mobile as a desktop uh, a couple of years ago. And part of doing that is being okay with not having the ability to upgrade your CPU or GPU. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Like I, I can I can see the traditionalist argument against that, um, but I also understand that like a lot of the world has accepted that hey, this, you just got to deal with it. Um, and part of it is that we do have more compute than we know what to do with, right? Yeah. Like what forty eight hundred series was the first teraflop on a on a card. Yeah. Um, and you know, outside of games, most apps don't really even come close to using that yet, and that was how many generations ago. So, but that's there's... on a. But the thing is, that's on a. That's on more of a consumer side. If you look at what's going on in the professional side, where you're talking about stuff that's like, you know, you're looking at CAD, you're looking at um, any kind of 3D rendering for uh, for a professional. Yeah, but those are all like either CPU bound or not completely using tons of GPU compute, right? Like they're not. Yeah. We're not pushing max floating point throughput on these cards yet. Um, and part of that is programming model, too. Um, but all of this discussion aside, the reason I brought up the Mac Pro is I feel mm -hmm. like uh, Apple has been a really unique indicator of a lot of things in, in the industry going forward, right? And, and one of those things has been, uh, so if you look at you know, what they did with the MacBook Air, right? Yeah. That kind of predated the Ultrabook revolution. It also predated a lot of things, right? Uh, a shift from... Uh, mechanical storage to solid state storage in consumer, like entry level consumer notebooks, right? Mm -hmm. Those were Apple's cheapest notebooks now come with SSDs. Yeah. Uh, granted, their cheapest notebooks are really expensive compared to the cheapest PC notebooks, but it's the same kind of indicator of, of where you need to be, right? Uh, the move to click pads, the move to chiclet keyboards, like all of this stuff 
they're not necessarily the first to do it, but they kind of uh, tend to be a leading indicator of, yeah, these are the, the, situa- the, the switches that you have to move to enlarge, um, you know, at some point or another. And the desktop side is interesting because they effectively said, hey, look, we're not building a, like a, we're not building desktop SKUs anymore. We'll yeah. build an all-in-one. Um, which have only really been successful for them, so maybe that's not a good indicator. Um, And we'll build this like really expensive high-end thing, but we're not going to play in the desktop space. And I look at that and I say, well, you know, the desktop market has been kind of uh, worldwide slowing, you know, North America declining. Um, Are they onto something? I don't know. Um, But I look at the Mac Pro, and, and one of the things that I see with that, I'm like, hey, look, at least this is someone that's trying Right, like they've. Yeah. Uh, I feel like a problem in the desktop market today is none of the, you know, the PC market is a victim of its own success. To to borrow your phrase there, in that all of the component vendors, cases, the cooling guys, the motherboard guys, you know, even the the chip suppliers, they depend on this ecosystem of supported standards, the ATX standard, you know, the power yeah. supply standards, all of this stuff. And once the standards are in place, we can all make components of those standards, and then you know you have this wonderful ecosystem where everyone can buy and build their own PCs. But the problem is, none of those standards have appreciably changed, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like Mini ITX, the the most exciting desktop form factor, in my opinion, is something that kind of Via accidentally did a long time ago. Yeah. Right. And that's the best we have. And I feel like that's frustrating to me because I, I meet with the motherboard guys, the case guys. Um, and I tell them, I'm like, hey, look, uh, you know, they, they always ask, well, what do you think we need to do, right? How do we, uh, how do we slow the slide and, and how do we turn it around? And my response is always the same, that look, well, you got to do something different, right? Like yeah. it's, it's don't wait for Intel to come and save you because they're not going to. They don't care about desktop that much anymore. Um, and their, their immediate response is always like, well, yeah, but if it's chicken and egg and so we're just not going to do it. And the problem is that's everyone's response. And as a result... You know, yeah, we get a bit Phoenix Prodigy, or yeah, Corsair builds some like really cool bigger cases, but that's like what two examples? You know, yeah. maybe Lan Lee does something that's interesting. It's and then everyone else in the world copies it. Like it's not a, uh, no one is really innovating, and I feel like that kind of helps lead that market away from success. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't, which, I wouldn't find sorry, you on that at all. Well, that's why I look at the Mac Pro and I'm like, hey, this is weird. Like it's a it's an odd looking thing, but at least they're trying. And like some basic stuff that, that uh, like the silly, um, hey, the, the ports light up when you turn the thing around, right? So you can like yeah. see where you're plugging stuff in. Like that's a stupidly simple feature, but anyone could have thought of it, right? Like anyone could have innovated at, at that level. Um, but no one is willing to kind of, one, take the, the penalty in terms of cost. And two, take the penalty in terms of risk in that, look, we're going to do something that maybe isn't supported by anyone, uh, but we need to do it and we need to bring other people into the fold and, and force them to kind of do this. Uh, and, and I feel like if you don't have anyone doing that, then yeah, the desktop market is definitely doomed. Um, well, it's, I mean, it feels like, a, you know, there's the, they're slow progress, um, but we're even seeing that a little bit on the notebook side too. Uh, and you know, you and I have uh, discussed. I know you've discussed it with uh, with vendors. Jared and I complain about it constantly. But like, uh, so notebook displays. Um, finally, we're starting to see uh, we're starting to see some higher quality notebook displays coming around. Um, 
you know, higher, uh, higher pixel density and everything. And that, um, it's taken them forever to get there, but at least they're getting there. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just the, uh, it's, it's slow progress. And what you're seeing, I mean, what we're seeing on the desktops, you mentioned it, um, mini ITX, which I mean, to me, that really is basically the future. Um, and the case manufacturers have to kind of get on board with that, but with the increased integration, uh, like I said, the the Northbridge, uh, the Z eighty seven Northbridge is tiny, uh, and it has in between that and like the Haswell chip, like you don't really need if you're going to build a system that has like a you know a fast processor and a fast graphics card. And you're going to hook it up to an SSD. Like, do you really need more than like a mini than a good mini ITX board? No. See, I would even argue that I, you don't even that much. You don't need that much space, right? Yeah. Like if here are the things that frustrate me, right? Like, you have this uh, kind of wonderful acceptance of Thunderbolt in the Apple ecosystem, but Microsoft's been kind of aggressively resisting it, and um, so for a multitude of reasons, but eventually, hopefully that gets fixed. But that, that to me is the ideal way of dealing with this stuff, right? You put the things on as small of a package as you can. Um, and for like massive rate array expandability, don't put that in your main case, right? Put it somewhere else in something that's, that's optimized for that duty. Um, and I guess the issue that I run into is, yeah, you do see some innovation around mini ITX. We finally have mini ITX chassis that are interesting that I would want to use. Yeah. But I wanted that like three or four years ago, <laughs> right? Like, well, we so wanted better now, displays like three or four years ago. It's just it's it's that slow roll. Yeah, but the display side I feel is different because they had a they had a to borrow one of Intel's analogies they had a rabbit to chase, right? Yeah. So they saw this whole like, hey, you know, we're we're losing notebook market share to a couple of things to, you know, these things that Apple's building and, you know, these new tablet things and, and display and trackpad quality, like these are all part of that uh, value chain. But in the desktop, I think people just look at it as, well, we're losing stuff to mobile. And yeah. well, that's just going to happen, right? So I feel like the uh, there is no blueprint out there for how to get people excited and interested in desktop. Um, and as a result, we don't we don't get that innovation. Like I know me personally, I I, I don't know. I believe in this kind of two device uh, world, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have um, two devices, and the combination of the two span this like great dynamic range, and then you get to do all the computing that you want to do at like optimal points along the curve. Yeah. And I don't know. I think like a, a desktop plus a convertible tablet thing of some sort is a very compelling pair of devices. I agree. But I see people innovated on innovating on the mobile side, but no one's really doing anything on desktop, and there's no one to follow, right? Like, and that's that's why I bring Apple up because they they've done something unique at least. Um, but I think it's too far out there that no one's going to follow that at all. Um, well, the okay, so the the part of the problem with the Mac Pro, even ignore, ignoring the fact that I think it's a, a boondoggle and a non-starter for uh, for the market that it, that would ordinarily accept it. Um, so, you, so, sorry, you think that, that existing Mac Pro owners won't go to it? No. Really? Um, I think some will, but how many existing Mac Pro owners are even are even left just because of how badly Apple has supported the Mac Pro over the past couple of years? They, like, as far as I remember, they skipped Sandy Bridge E altogether. 
Yes, there's no there's no Sandy Bridge Mac Pro. Yeah, um, the, the the Mac Pro was the the Mac Pro was a second class citizen in Apple's ecosystem, and it was kind of left there to rot on the vine. Um, and so I I feel like I feel like the the high end Apple desktop user right one of two things exists here they either migrated to mobile um, yeah which would be the logical well, thing to do. Yes, uh, and that's just the folks who are following the market regardless. Yeah. But there's the second type of user, which I don't really know existed until I saw it, um, where you had people just a few years ago on Power Mac G5 still. And these are people working in like photography and video production and what have you, and they have these big Power Mac G5s. And I remember talking to one of them, he was a, a photographer, and he was like, oh, I'm trying to save up for the new Mac Pro. And... I told him, like, you know, a Mac Mini is actually faster than what you're running here. Yeah. And he had no idea. Like, he just, he didn't know. Um, and, you know, I showed him some data, and, and then he went out and bought a bunch of Mac Minis, and now he's super happy. But I feel like there's also that type of user who they're just used to buying, and, and we see this in the PC industry as well, yeah. right? They just, whenever the highest end whatever comes out, they just buy that, right? And I feel like those people will transition over. I think they'll... Uh, I mean, I remember being upset with the size of the Mac Pro, you know, when I still used one. And I was like, this yep. is unnecessarily large. I don't want this. Yep. Um, so I feel like I, I don't know how big that market is. Um, but I think it's really cool that Apple spent a bunch of money doing a brand new design for that market. Right. Which is what I, I think yep. the crux of my issue here is that no one is willing to do that on on the other side of the fence. Like in the PC space, no one is willing to go out and spend a bunch of money on a market that yeah, a lot of people have abandoned it for mobile. Um, well, I, but still. Well, they, okay, so the, you have this extremely radical design from Apple, and I don't think it's fair to really to to bring up the Apple devoted saying, well, they'll buy it. Well, of course they'll buy it, because they're, you know, that's just that's what they're going to do. They're just Apple customers through and through, and that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter what Apple released, they were going to buy it. Um, But... If you look you at the sorry, go ahead. Okay, but if you look at the enterprise market, um, if you look at like workstations, um, what you're seeing from uh, at least from Dell and HP and Lenovo, um, Lenovo a little bit to a lesser extent, but Dell and HP definitely, is they're shrinking their workstations. They still have these monstrous like dual CPU like you know full fat you know uh, you know this is gonna go to work for Pixar workstations, but they also have these much smaller ones now. Mm-hmm. And those are becoming increasingly fashionable. And if you look at the the hardware that's in them, you have like a low profile Quadro, um, and you have like a uh, like an Ivy Bridge Xeon, um, and those seem to be becoming increasingly popular. And they're you know they're they're performance competitive. And the difference is that they're still totally user serviceable because in the uh, for uh, again for enterprise um, and for business, user serviceability is king. Yes. It's and that's where like the lion's share of there's actually been a tremendous amount of innovation, um, that most people haven't really seen because it's not really trickling down to the consumer desktop. The consumer desktop is lethargic at best. Yeah, um, and I guess that's what. Uh, so I was ignoring the kind of traditional enterprise works uh, workstation yeah market, but I, I think that's a very interesting point. So they're going through the exact same approach that effectively Apple is with the Mac Pro. But they're maintaining user serviceability, which yes. is obviously what they need in that market. Um, and and so effectively, what you're saying is that Apple won't draw any new sales from there, like they have in the mobile space. Absolutely not. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's fair. I think that's a um, uh, I think that's likely true. Um, and I don't necessarily know that Apple is ever with the Mac Pro drawn from those markets. Uh, well, they have. They've really. It's it's always been like a a hero product or a place to go up if you are in the OS ten world and you need more compute. Well, so they had a cash cow for a little while with Final Cut Pro seven, mm-hmm. um, and that was gonna, and you know and that was going to drive uh, Mac Pro sales. Um, but again, that's not. That was that doesn't exist anymore. That's not there. Yeah, but that was a that was a software thing. Right. That was software so, so, driving hardware sales. Yeah. And the so, hardware was it was essentially irrelevant because they just wanted OS ten. Yes. Interesting. But so I guess this is both this is two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. Which is okay, so we have this innovation, we have this uh effort being put into these high end workstations. It doesn't trickle down to the consumer desktop. And yeah. what's interesting is this actually mirrors Intel's microprocessor strategy, right? Which is if you want even more overclockability, even more insane performance, more cash, more everything, they'll sell you an Ivy Bridge E. Yeah. Right? They'll sell you a Xeon effectively. Um, and there you go. Yeah. So is that the answer? Like the consumer, you know, this, this traditional desktop enthusiast guy, if he wants innovation, he's going to have to go on the Xeon path? Ultimately, I think that's what it's going to wind up being. And the drag of that is that um, the way Intel segments their markets ensures that no one gets everything they want. Yeah. Um, Well, so I I know why that is now, right? For the longest time, I was just like beyond frustrated that if you wanted the extreme skew, right? If you wanted Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge, or Haswell E, you got to wait like a year after the architecture comes out. Yeah. and the reason being is that these are effectively server parts, right? It's yeah. a server designed architecture. Uh, the server customers want a socket for two generations, right? They yeah. demand that the same socket be used for two generations. And as a result, to kind of bring server and consumer desktop today, if you were trying to align them, you would have to kill, you would have to prematurely kill a server architecture, right? So you would have had to have said, hey, you know what? Ivory isn't happening. We're just pulling in Haswell E. And I don't think anyone can make a good business case because I don't think it exists as to why you should do that. Because at least today, Intel is selling every single server CPU they can make, right? And they're making tons of money off of it. And to kill an entire line to support like just some stuff in the enthusiast community, I don't know that that makes sense. I think, I feel like, okay, so if they, I could theoretically live without QuickSync, uh, I would be unhappy to, but I, you know, I could theoretically do that. Um, but if, like, if Ivy Bridge E is still going to be stuck on X79 as the chipset, that's, again, you're not getting... Because you have to be, right? It's the same socket for two years. It's just a server part. Like, yeah. when, I, when I was first, when I was first presented with this argument, it all made sense to me, right? Like, yeah. it's, uh, it's just that you're not Facebook or Google, so it kind of upsets you, right? <laughs> like that, that uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's why it is what it is. I just think, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, the, the enthusiast has to go for either, like, Haswell and deal with what it actually is. Like, Z87's an amazing chipset. 
Z87 yeah, okay. is, in my opinion, more desirable than Haswell itself. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, okay, so you can go with Haswell, you get, like, a totally sweet chipset, you get, uh, QuickSync, you get, uh, and I actually, I, I think QuickSync is underrated, that's just me personally, but, like, I've used it for, um, for doing videography in the Bay Area, and just being able to take the SD card out of my camera, pop it into an Ultrabook, have QuickSync convert everything I just shot over the course of a couple minutes, and then copy that video onto the performer's flash drive, like, in the space of 10 minutes being able to do all that. To me, that's amazing. No, I, 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 I want QuickSync used in more places, Yeah, um, which is why I'm super happy they finally open-sourced, like, that the the scheduler component of it or mm-hmm. whatever so we could get, you know, eventually get support and handbrake and things like that. Um, and it kills me to no end that Apple still doesn't, you know, expose this stuff under OS X. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on QuickSync. Well, that's oh. okay. So that's the one area where Haswell kind of upset me in that there's this like regression in image quality with QuickSync, um, and I haven't had time to like go down with Intel and and figure out how this is getting fixed. I'm really but, looking uh, forward to seeing what co- what comes of that actually because I have a personal investment in QuickSync. Yeah, no, there's a like there's an email in my inbox addressing this. I just I've been out of the country for yeah. way too long. Um, so there there is the work is being done on it. I just I haven't kept up my end of the deal yet. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so my like my comparison was okay. So you can you get Haswell, you get like a really mediocre uh, enthusiast enthusiast experience in terms of just the uh, you know the the overclocking headroom and the the you know the knobs you want to twist and tweak. But you get like a wicked chipset. Um, you get the low power consumption. You get, so there's a lot of stuff that, that's still left to recommend Haswell. Um, to recommend it over Ivy Bridge or Sandy is a trickier proposition. Um, or if you're like you know if you're the enthusiast that like craves performance at all costs, well you could go over to Ivy Bridge E, uh, and that looks like it's going to have the 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 overclocking headroom you crave. Uh, power consumption be damned, but you're still stuck with an ancient. By uh, by industry standards, X seventy nine uh, chipset, uh, and you don't have you know you don't have QuickSync, you don't have certain bells and whistles. You just all like you get CPU peak perf and nothing else. Yeah, no, it's and that's why I've never wanted that platform. Yeah, um, I, I uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. It's a frustrating set of trade offs. But so, do you feel has has this conversation at all? Given you any additional, uh, has it made you think about or, or even reconsider aspects of your your position on Haswell at all, or do you still feel like you're just as convinced as ever? Well, I okay, so I like I like to talk in absolutes, but generally speaking, I um, you know I'm willing to well I, ha- well I have to keep an open mind, especially in this kind of in this industry where even like so much as a driver or a firmware update can completely change the game. Um, I am not bullish on Haswell, but until I've spent more time with it, and like, I mean, um, I th- I mentioned to you that, we're, that I'm working on a uh, custom liquid cooling loop article, and I will be using an i7-4770K. Uh, and I thought about, well, you know, should I wait for Ivy Bridge E? No. Because uh, that's like, that's still, uh, you know, that's still a couple months out. Um, and I want to see if you can get more out of Haswell, and I want to, and it's important for me just to have that perspective to know just what you can do with the chip. Yeah. Um. So I mean, until I've, until I've really like put the screws to it, until I've tested it more aggressively, 
it's hard to say because you remember too, uh, giving giving Intel the benefit of the doubt. Like when Ivy Bridge came out, everybody was pretty disappointed in it. But as um, you know, as time passed, it hasn't. Um, a lot of that has kind of a lot of that the uh, disappointment over it has kind of uh, dissipated. It has. And yeah. so I, I looked at Ivy Bridge the same way and I was like, hey, look, it's we're still scaling an IPC. Yeah, I'm happy. And and again, the uh, I feel like a lot of this boils down to how accepting you are of this idea that uh, the, the free ride on overclocking is going to end or it has ended in certain degrees already. Um, like I, I've I don't know, that part of my soul has died. <laughs> and, <laughs> like I, I'm just like, oh, free IPC. This is awesome. Um, and hey, they're building all this other cool stuff that's that's going to be very important in mobile. Like they're finally taking graphics performance, kind of. You know, <laughs> you seriously. were really excited about that until you saw how uh, frequent uh, I, uh, Iris Pro wasn't materializing. Yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like that's a that's a beyond frustrating to me. But it's. I mean, the point is that yeah. it's happening, right? And that it's. Um, I was really worried for a while there with Intel that we were going to still get these. Uh, designed by accountant sort of diarrhea yeah. things coming out of them, right? Where, you know, hey, uh, we're just going to push CPU performance forever. But now we're getting parts that are more than half GPU. Um, yeah. And that's a really big deal. And yeah, no one's using it yet. And that's frustrating. But uh, that's hopefully not going to kill everything that's in the pipeline. So I, I'm I'm happy about that stuff. So I was positive on on Ivy, and I, I feel the same way about Haswell. Like it's a an even larger IPC increase. Um, I love Fiverr. Like I, I yeah. this whole switching between voltages is super fast stuff is just awesome to me. Like I, I just want to sit in CPU-Z and watch the voltages change. Um, <laughs> and again, the overclocking, the 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 the, I've come to accept the overclocking situation is what it is. Um, and that's why, like, I look at the 5 gigahertz AMD part, and I'm like, this is not what I want. I don't want no. a 200 plus watt TDP anything, right? Like, I I want all of what I enjoy about mobile, right? Decreasing power, yeah. you know, clamping TDPs. I just want it in a slightly larger chassis so I get a little bit more performance. And yeah. and I'm that's why I'm okay with this. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, you think there's a, like, you, you think the, the public reaction here is similar to what it was with Ivy Bridge? Uh, I do. I think you know, we can, you know, we can, uh, I can be disappointed about Haswell now, but that's like kind of a, you know, that's a, that is, that's a seat of your pants, kind of a reflex reaction. Yes. And over time, Haswell could, you know, conceivably continue to be this massive disappointment to enthusiasts or what will more likely happen, I think, is that they'll adapt to it the same way they adapted to Ivy, and they'll also figure out how to eke more performance out of it than they than they knew. Because what we're also dealing with is that the, the motherboard manufacturers that are providing the tools to overclock it are still feeling out Haswell. So until that's mature, you can't definitively say. Yeah. Well, I guess, so one thing that I was trying to go after with the whole, like, what happens with the desktop um, discussion is... Mm -hmm. I feel like you have to bifurcate that market into the people who have um, kind of accepted, you know, the fate of overclocking and, yeah. and the people who haven't. And I don't know. I, I feel like I don't necessarily know that my viewpoint is in the majority, but I feel like there are a lot of people who 
maybe haven't migrated to mobile yet that are still on desktop that are still kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I don't need to overclock it that much, if yeah. at all, right? Um, well, overclocking more and more has really just been kind of a, as far as I can tell, it's just been more of an enthusiast sport of like, well, how fast can I get it in the first place? Or, yeah. you know, maybe I can squeeze some extra juice out of it. Uh, that's like, I mean, that's what, that's how I overclocked. I didn't overclock to see like just the, you know, how screaming fast can I get my system? I overclocked to see how much extra perf can I get out of it while still maintaining a pretty stable uh, workstation. Yes. And just, you know, getting a little bit of extra you know, a little bit of extra kick for not much more power consumption and not much more heat. Um, so, like, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard it's it's hard to speak to to because there are so there are sub demographics within this this demographic in and of itself. Yeah. No, it's it's tough. Like, and and I don't necessarily know the the breakdown either. Um, Again, so I, I was surprised by how this unfolded, right? I really expected your your issue to be, hey, I need my 20 to 40% increase in IPC. Mm. I feel like if really all the convincing that, that you know you would need is that extra like two-ish hundred megahertz or maybe more, um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's, maybe you'll get that over the course of Haswell as, as the process matures, as yields increase and stuff like that. Like I, I feel like that's a lot, that's a lot easier to deliver than hey double IPC again. Yeah. Um, well, that's, and the thing is that's like, my issue wasn't, my issue wasn't the IPC. My issue was, was consistently that the, uh, that the, uh, the top end overclocking performance had plateaued over a series of generations. Um, and if they can, if they can eke out enough to where I can, I can definitively say, yeah, well, if you're gonna, you know, overclock or if you're gonna buy an enthusiast system, you like, you obviously want Haswell beyond just the fact that it's the, you know, the the new hotness. Um, that's kind of where I want to be because the thing is that that extra two hundred to four hundred megahertz that you might be able to get out of it, we're at parity with Ivy right now. Uh, which is the which is the, the 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 primary complaint? If we can get past that and be able to produce a seriously noticeable improvement, then that should theoretically be enough to uh, satisfy the majority of enthusiasts. Nobody's ever going to be completely satisfied because we're you know nerds, but uh, <laughs> but if you get but if you get like that that little bit more, it'll be enough to satisfy most people. I think. Interesting. I mean, I feel like that's a, I don't know. I mean, if, if what we're talking about is, uh, like I said, is a roughly a 5% difference in frequency, um, I, I feel like that's, you know, you're going to get folks who get parts that'll, that'll do it. Um, and, and that's, that's something that'll just kind of get better over time, yeah. right? As yields improve. Um, if you're looking for a larger increase in IPC, like it just physically can't happen unless you move to AVX to, you know, optimized yeah. applications, which, takes time and, and what have you. Um, so here's the interesting question. If someone were building a desktop today, would you recommend anything but Haswell? No. And that's that, that's the drag, but that's the truth. And I, yeah. It would be with you know, with qualifiers, but ultimately it would still be, well, it's, Haswell's the newest and it has, and the, thing, and the th selling point to me is Z87. Interesting. So for me, here's here's the thing. This is this is what I really wanted Intel to do that they didn't. 
Um, and, and this is where I feel they've let the desktop enthusiasts down, right? Which is one, you have, you bring back B clock overclocking, um, and you limit it to K series, K series parts only, Yeah, which is completely useless because I don't, if I have an unlocked part, I'm going to overclock using multipliers. I'm yeah. not going to use B clock. And I don't, I don't need that extra like 2% of performance that I can get by tweaking B clock. Like yeah. that's a, that's a useless feature to me. And Again, that is that's the perfect example of the only reason this is the way it is is because AMD isn't competitive in single thread performance. Right. Um, so there's that which I'm unhappy about, and I've, I vocalized Intel from the the minute that they brought it up. Right before Haswell NDA expired, I was like, "This is wrong. It sucks, and you guys shouldn't do this." Yeah. Um, so there's that. The second thing is you can't buy a K series SKU. You can't actually buy the fastest configuration of Haswell as a desktop enthusiast you cannot purchase. Um, so that's a K-series SKU with uh, Crystal Well. Um, even if you don't use the graphics, uh, which I think you know, there's even a, maybe a small subset of the market that would use GT3E on the desktop, mm -hmm. even if you don't use the graphics, you have 128 meg level 4 cache, um, which is just cool. Yeah. Right, and and maybe there's some corner cases where that improves performance. This is something that I'm I'm actively investigating right now, but it frustrates me to no end that that you can't do that, um, and that's something that I had just incorrectly assumed would come with Haswell, but uh, because you know in the past we always got the highest end graphics implementation on the K series SKU, so I, I assumed we would get this generation as well, um, so we didn't, and that's frustrating. Uh, so so now I, I'm you know. If we get a Broadwell, a socketed Broadwell, I'm, I'm hoping that we can change that. Um, and, and that's the bulk of my complaints there. Uh, yeah. I, I just kind of want those two things. Um, and I feel like there's a chance we will get Crystal Well on a socketed K-series desktop part if we all make enough noise about it. Um, and not just like ranting noise, but actually showing that, hey, this is a part that people would pay for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's worth the validation. And, and the, the route I've been taking there is I feel like there is this market that doesn't want the Xeon SKU, right? That doesn't want Ivy Bridge E, right. but still needs more performance than the highest end desktop SKU. And this is a simple way of addressing that. Yeah. Um, so that's been my route of, of trying to position this. And I've been wanting to write an editorial about this um, to kind of influence change over there. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, that's the, those are the things that I want from Haswell. Um, I, I admittedly, I come to it from a slightly different perspective because, mm -hmm. like I said, I've, I've kind of accepted the fate of overclocking. And, and maybe I'm wrong, but I've, I've accepted that things aren't going to get better. Um, and thus, if you look at stock performance, and I look at these situations where we get 15% gains in IPC, and I like that. Like, single thread performance is really important to me, and, and that's really cool. Um, and then, like I said, I just like seeing fiber go up and down really fast. <laughs> So. Yeah, well, your well, your thing too is that you uh, you moved like predominantly to uh, you're using uh, a MacBook Pro almost entirely now, right? As your primary yeah. system, yeah. So the difference uh, for you is that like uh, an increase in IPC is all gravy for you. Uh, my primary workstation is a desktop because I'm not traveling like every you know ten minutes like you are. Yeah. So when I'm looking at uh, when well, I'm looking at my desktop performance, not really moving. That but, makes so me a little I, I cranky. Even, I view it, uh, I'm excited about it even on the desktop though, right? Because again, you get this, uh, let's talk at, at roughly the same frequencies here, right? Not overclocking. Yeah. You get an uplift in IPC yeah. and, and you do get better performance. And I like that. Like that's, <laughs> uh, 
and and I don't know, like it's that's where I feel like the difference in perspective is in that I, you know, I'll overclock and I'll appreciate something that is well overclocked, but I get this anxiety around overclocking at much higher voltages. Uh, yeah. And because I just don't want the added power. Like it's not yeah. a I it's not making the electricity meter run more. That's the issue. It's that I just don't want the added heat in the room. I guess I'm of the impression that, or I'm of the opinion that uh, an improvement in uh, any any performance improvement in uh, mobile is going to be more appreciable and more appreciated than a performance improvement on the desktop. That's true, simply because the improvements that happen in mobile have to be under extreme power constraints. Yeah. Right. So, like, anytime you get an improvement there and battery life doesn't like completely just disappear, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Um, and and this is a separate topic, but you know the the story that I'm I'm close to publishing here on on what Haswell ULT actually does for platform power has huge implications, right? Yeah. Like you can if you have an iPad out and you're you're kind of lightly using it, and you have a 13 inch MacBook Air and you're lightly using it, the MacBook Air will finally outlast the iPad, um, which just wasn't the case before. Yeah. Um. So that's that's a very big deal. Yeah. That's well. That's huge. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No. That's that. That's a. I don't know if it's going to save like the notebook market. Um. I. I still fundamentally believe that like around ten to eleven inches, you have this like convergence of tablets and notebooks that yeah. happen. Yeah. Um. But, yeah. So that that's really exciting. Um. Okay. So closing thoughts on Haswell. How do you how do you feel? Summarize your viewpoints and and let's let's bring this to an end. <laughs> what do I, so your opinion hasn't changed. You need that, like you Intel. If they turned around tomorrow and said, "You know what, Dustin, we're giving you another five percent overclocking headroom," like you're happy, you're done. For the most part, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I just again, like I, my my thoughts were essentially that uh, the overclocking, the the overclocking performance, the the you know the peak overclocking performance need, needs to go up. That's yeah. that was the that was the 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 big well, peak drain on my or feelings. At, at like sweet spot overclocking or both. Well, both. Because okay. if you if you move the peak up a little bit, you can theoretically move the sweet spot up a little bit too, um, and okay. that's and that's like that's why I want to see I want to see the sweet spot move far enough away from Ivy Bridge's sweet spot to justify Haswell as an enthusiast part. Now it has to be far enough away, or can it be just equal? Because like we've already we're at we're at equal. Okay. We're at equal. It needs to, it, and that like that's a disappointment. Here's a brand new chip. It's as fast as last year's chip. No, no. So you're talking performance. I'm sp I'm uh, just talking frequency. Um. So at frequency, we're at a regression, but you're saying the combination of frequency delta plus IPC increase brings us to rough parity if yes. you're looking at peak overclocking. Yes. Uh, or not necessarily rough parity, but like you know maybe only like three percent better than where we were before. If you can give if you can give me a Haswell that hits the same clocks as Ivy did, yes. or even like you know even maybe like a hundred megahertz less, I'd be satisfied because the yeah. IPC takes over the rest of it. Yeah, so I feel like that is a um, I don't know. So this is like an interesting case of how delicate public perception can be. Yeah, like from my perspective, <laughs> in mobile, like I can't overclock. Period. Right. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, whatever. This. this yeah, is you're just less SOL. Concern. Yeah. Yeah, and and in desktop, because desktop is already so much faster than mobile, I'm just super happy to even be on a desktop. Right. Like it's. <laughs> I'm like, this is great. It's not burning my lap. I'm. I don't know. Everything's just awesome here. Yeah. Um. But it it shows like how delicate like, very enthusiast user perception 
is to manage. Yeah. And I don't know. To me, like I'm 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 not convinced still. Like I said, I'm coming from a you know, you go from a phone to a laptop and a desktop, and like each time you do that, it's like I've gone into the future by a couple of years in terms of performance. Yeah. Um, or sometimes even more. So I'm like I said, just just happy to be there. Um but I, I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of people echo your sentiments. I think a lot of people echo uh, taking an even harder position, which is, hey, we want more of an IPC improvement. Um, but like I said, if you look at what they've done in the underlying yeah. architecture, that's just, uh, it just wasn't in the cards. And if you're yeah. comparing it to Sandy Bridge, Sandy Bridge was like a dramatic repipe uh, plumbing of, of quite a bit in yeah, the execution was. engine. Oh, we were spoiled um, by it. <clears throat> So anyways, well, this was, this was uh, a good discussion. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we accomplished anything, but it, a lot of things that needed to be said were said. Um, so thank you all for listening, uh, and uh, we'll be back uh, probably in a week or so with another episode. All right, thank you.